The following program is a special presentation of the Big Ten Network, produced in association with the University of Iowa. Hi, I'm Keisha Lynn. Welcome to Conversations from the Iowa Writers Workshop. Margot Livesey is the author of seven books of fiction. Her most recent, a novel titled The House on Fortune Street, won the L.L. Winship Penn New England Award in 2009. She has received Guggenheim and NEA fellowships, among others, and has taught at several universities, including, of course, the Iowa Writers Workshop. She is currently a distinguished writer in residence at Emerson College in Massachusetts. Margo, it's so good to have you here. Thank you, Keisha. It's wonderful to be back. Yeah, I got to ask you, um, I saw in an interview that you had said that you had not yet figured out a way to describe easily your latest novel. Have you figured a way yet? I think I'm getting a little bit better, but I recognized at first that people were trying to think of it as something like a detective story. And because I hardly ever read detective stories, I thought, no, 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 that's, that's not what I'm after. So I think of The House on Fortune Street as being more like a, a jigsaw puzzle where the narrative comes to you as narratives often come in real life in bits and pieces from different sources and the reader gradually figures out how to put them together. But I want my reader to feel incredibly intelligent as they read the book rather than incredibly stupid, which is how I feel when I read detective books. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say in terms of how the reader puts together the narrative, because when I've read re reviews for this, everybody seems to come at it from different perspectives and different reviewers have focused on, you know, we'll, we'll talk about what, what the novel is about, um, but I wanted to um, get a nice sense from you of how this novel began. Where's, what was the seed for this novel? I think it had several seeds. One was that I'd long wanted to write about a long friendship between women. As an only child, friendship's always been the mainstay of my of my life. And so, I, but I feel in novels, it often gets sort of relegated to the margins and it isn't perceived as being as passionate or as interesting as either on the one hand family relationships or on the other romantic relationships. So that was one ambition. And, and another was to write about what people do with, with childhood damage, with family history. And um, some, people seem to some people seem to emerge from damaged families amazingly intact, amazingly unscathed, and they sort of put down that suitcase of difficulty and just carry on. And then other people, they just can't put down that suitcase. Mm -hmm. So those were really two propelling ambitions. And then thirdly, I'd say, and, and you know, very sadly, having um, you know, two people close to me commit suicide and thinking a lot about what a huge hole that leaves in a lot of people's lives. Right, exactly, yeah. Uh, this, the story is told from four different perspectives. And you talk, it, actually, the, the perspectives are the, the two friendships, the, the two women in the friendship, the friendship um, Abigail and Dara, and then Sean, who is Abigail's boyfriend, and Cameron, who is Dara's father. And again, I'm coming back to what you said about how the reader figures out what happens. This book has four distinct points of view, and you start out with the men's point of view, and I was wondering why you did that. I wish I could say that was a well thought out plan, <laughs> but it came about rather ha in a rather haphazard fashion. I started writing about Sean 
uh, originally thinking I was writing a novella, something that would I would finish gracefully in, I don't know, 80 or 90 pages. And I got to the end of those 80 or 90 pages and I was very dissatisfied. I felt I hadn't done his story justice, but I also felt I didn't want to expand his story in a conventional way. And so uh, I put it aside for six or seven years. And, um, and then just really, it, it felt like just one day I suddenly thought, oh, Sean, he's in a drawer. I'm going to get him out. I know what to do. And I sat down and started writing the next section, which turned out to be from Dara's father's point of view. Right. So you basically wrote this book. Is it safe to say you wrote it from A to B? Yes. Pretty much? Yeah. That, so that, and that's how the voices came to you. So is it safe to say that Sean, and Sean opens the book, he is the boyfriend of Abigail, one of the women in, um, who comprises friendship. All of these characters are kind of dealing with their own loneliness. They're kind of moving in these circles where they're, you know, kind of bumping into each other, kind of clumsy towards each other. But Sean opens up and you just can tell, you know, his brawn is damaged. Was he the easiest character to write since he was the first, or did you find that certain voices came better than others? I think um, I had certain struggles with Sean. One, but one is because he's in love with poetry, and that's actually not an easy thing to, I think, to convey on the page. He's in love with John Keats, who's, whom he's writing about in his dissertation. And when I first gave the novel to my editor, she said, I really like Sean, but he's not sufficiently masculine. Oh, and I said, oh, what does that mean? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and she said, well, she had three things to say. She said, well, he loves poetry, mm -hmm. he cooks, and he doesn't drive. Uh, so now he gets takeaway meals, right. and he does drive, <laughs> but he still loves poetry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. That was important with all the characters. Um, and I wanted to ask, because I know that you were a great reader as a child and that a lot of the you know, old masters of literature played a big role in your, you know, as your reading life and your writing life. All of these characters have ties to different British authors. Can you talk about that a little bit? Again, I stumbled towards this. I wanted to write about Sean's relationship with Keats and how that is for him another very passionate relationship along with his relationship with Abigail. And once I'd finished that, and I thought, well, this is really interesting, having a literary figure sort of wandering through my modern world, my you know, late 20th century London. Yeah. And so I thought, let me try to do that for each character. And at the same time, let me try to have in mind my husband, who does not have Jane Eyre by his bedside. Right, right. <laughs> so I tried to include everything that I thought he would need to know to not get irritated and appreciate my literary godparents, as mm -hmm, I think of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and, and you mentioned um, Jane Eyre. Uh, that's where we see with Dara. Dara, well, both of these characters, I want to talk about the women, Abigail and Dara. There was a New York Times review where the woman, the reviewer focused on, almost exceedingly so. Did you see that that review about I the... Did. Yeah. I did. She called them spinsters. Spinsters. I saw that. Okay, who, that was a different who, take on this. Yeah, who has spinsters nowadays? You know, I mean, it's one of those... And then she brought in Sex and the City, and she brought... Basically, you have these two women who are unmarried, right? Yes. And that's where this review went. But Dara is this very interesting character who's dealing, both Abigail and Dara have childhood trauma, and Dara's connection to the literary greats happens to be Jane Eyre because of this mysterious man, Edward. But then Dara, let's talk a little bit about Dara's childhood and some of the ways in which she's basically blundering through her adulthood because of this you know, betrayal that her father went through. Can you talk a little bit about her? Yes, Dara is a, a social worker. She works at a women's center and she's very good at what she does. She's very good at listening to people, at entering into their lives, at 
thinking of creative ways to help them. And unfortunately, in a way, that's a kind of liability for her as well, because people tend to tell her their problems rather than ask if she has problems. And she also perhaps invests almost too much in various theories of therapy and the self. So she's someone who's always sort of thinking, if I can just find the key, I can unlock, unlock the door of my problems. I can figure out what the problem is. And she has various theories about them, most of which center around her father leaving the family when she's 10 years old for reasons that she never really understands. And we bring up the father, Cameron, who I thought was an interesting character to write about. He's the only one who is first person. And I'm wondering if there was a purpose behind that, simply because of the kind of person he is. And you could talk about him as well. And the fact that, and again, to make all these characters sympathetic, of course, is the challenge. And that you were able to do that, I thought, was really very, very skillful. Can you talk a little bit about Cameron? I'm so glad you said Cameron was sympathetic, because I felt that his behavior is so reprehensible at times. But I really wanted the reader to think of him as someone whose life and difficulties she could enter into. And um, I felt that if he, if he spoke in his, in his own voice in the first person, that it would be a kind of confession, and that that seemed the way to, to woo the reader into his difficult circumstances. Right. right. But all of these people go, we get to see, well, especially Dara and Abigail, but also Cameron, we get to see their traumas as, you know, as children with Cameron. I thought it was interesting that his brother dies. Yes. You know, as so you describe how, how that happened. And then, of course, what happens with Cameron that require, that causes him to leave so abruptly, and again, not giving anything away. But, you know, it's one of those things I always feel like writers, you know, you, you take, you, you go there, right? You go to the places where people might, might shrink back. You know, and I find you do that often with your fiction. I, I, I certainly aspire to. I mean, I'm really in love with plot, and I have two very hardworking sisters in Scotland, and I'm always trying to keep them awake at night a little bit longer with my books. Are they your designated readers? They are my designated imaginary readers, imaginary although readers. Yeah. I don't usually give them my books till they're finished. Okay. <laughs> but isn't it interesting? I, I, I forget who else, some, but some people talk about they write to a particular person, and that's one way to do it. You know, you've got your two sisters today, we just don't want them to fall asleep yes. while, while reading this. Can you talk about the title of the book, The House on Fortune Street, and the significance of that title? The House on Fortune Street is owned by Abigail, um, Sean's girlfriend, and she's an actress. She's not a struggling actress. She's actually doing moderately well. And uh, Fortune Street is a real street in London. Mm -hmm. It's actually in the banking district in the city of London, so no normal person lives there. So I just sort of dragged it south so that it could be Abigail's address. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was a wonderful um, address for the characters because they're, they're all sort of wrestling with questions of how much control they have in their lives and to what degree their lives are at the mercy of Lady Fortune. And, and I think most people go back and forth between the, these two poles. Right, exactly. And these two, these four characters, all in their own ways, they're flawed. And again, I mentioned they kind of bump into each other, trying to figure stuff out. And this is the the messiness and the complications of life that you're able to transcribe into fiction and create a novel that I felt like the four narratives worked very well together. You know, in terms of setting challenges for yourself in your writing, do you find yourself doing that? I mean, this is your seventh book sixth novel, you know, when you start a novel, are you setting yourself to a certain, 
task or a certain goal, or you, do you just let the story come, or what? I think in the house on Fortune Street, I had very specific ambitions about trying to tell a story in a different way. And I think that has to do partly with getting older and with often in real life, you know, I only learn one part of the story at a time. And then sometimes years pass before I learn another part of the story. So I wanted to create a novel that was life like that in, in that way but still offered the conventional pleasures of a novel. Namely, you get everything in a sort of five by eight package. Right, you do exactly. get the whole story. <laughs> you just don't know at once that you're getting it. Right, and, and you get it again in these, in these different little concrete segments that slowly build this, this large picture, which I thought was you know, fabulous. Again, you mentioned that you started with Sean, yes. and, then late, and then you put him away for a while. Yes. And you never, was this a typical process for you when you write? Or do you find that you go back and forth between projects? Or do you find that, you know, are you able to start a project and then just keep going? Um, how, how does it work for you when you're writing a novel? I aspire to sit down in a Trollope, you know, like Anthony Trollope, <laughs> the 19th century British writer. I aspire to sit down and start a novel at the beginning and then work faithfully every day and, and finish it. Yeah. Um, However, in real life, sometimes <laughs> this plan gets derailed. Um, I have one novel, Criminals, of which I wrote a draft in three weeks. Mm -hmm. I was at the McDowell Writers' Colony with my dear friend, Andrea Barrett. Mm -hmm. And I have another novel, Eva Moves the Furniture, that I wrote over 12 years. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not sure I have a typical writing process. Mm -hmm. And I think my students sometimes turn, you know, pale with shock when I admit <laughs> that I took 12 years over a novel. Um, you have written quite a few books on many different subjects. And I always, I wanted to know, what, how do you decide what to write about? What kind of things catch your attention? I, I, without running through all the different books you've read, I mean, you, you tackled Asperger's syndrome, you've tackled amnesia, you've tackled, you know, child kidnapping in a way. You've just kind of gone all over the place. I think bad behavior, like like many writers, I'm a great fan of bad behavior. Uh, and I'm an inveterate reader of, of the local pages of newspapers, those pages that describe sort of low-level crime and misdemeanors that, <laughs> that I can enter into as, as a reader. And I think, too, I'm always sort of looking as to what's bobbing up in the zeitgeist, you know? Um, when I wrote about a baby being kidnapped, it was partly because there were so many things in the press about surrogate mothers and adopted mothers and biological parents and, and the struggles between the various groups. And I thought, that really is fascinating. And what do we think about these questions of who should be the parent nowadays? You know, do you think writers are just, we're just innately curious people? We just are asking these questions and trying to answer them through fiction or even poetry or whatever our medium is? I, I think writers are innately curious. The great Irish writer William Trevor described coming into a little Irish village and it's, you know, whitewashed cottages and sheep grazing and hollyhocks and everything's calm and beautiful. And he immediately looked around and he thinks, you know, where's the trouble here? Where, where, where are the problems? <laughs> There's a story here. Yes, and I think we do have our antennae out for what lies below the surface. I wanted to mention the Wall Street Journal article that called you one of the great unknown writers. This was early in January of this year. How did it feel to be called a great unknown writer? You've been working for about 20 years, a little over 20 years. 
on the one hand, I'm very, I'm very flattered. That was a nice thing to say. Um, <laughs> on the, on the other hand, uh, I suppose there's something a little bit um, perplexing about being a great unknown. Right. I, I, I can't quite <laughs> say why. <laughs> well, it was, I mean, it was meant in the sense, let's be clear and make sure the audience understands that, you, it was the, the writer considered you one of the best writers that very few people have heard of. And it's one of those things that that's actually a good thing, you know, because we find out about the more we read, some of us, you know, we read everything and there's always someone new yes. to discover. In terms of success, and this is, again, you mentioned your students and what everybody comes with an idea of what it means to be a successful writer. What would you consider to be the definition of a successful writer? I think for me, a successful writer is someone who gets to put writing at the center of their lives and who is lucky enough to live in the world of words to the degree that they want to. And if you take 10 years off to cultivate your garden or um, breed Labradors instead, uh, I think that's just fine because writing doesn't have a clock attached like ballet dancing or exactly. <laughs> you know, competitive swimming, say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, see, it's interesting that um, people, again, have this idea of what constitutes success and for every big name that you see there are all kinds of people who are just working in obscurity and toiling in obscurity um, or not so obscure as in your case right um, you've taught at a lot of different places and in fact you were my first teacher at the Iowa Writers Workshop what do you most enjoy about teaching I think what I most enjoy is uh, what I, or at least what I aspire to what I most aspire to is to help my students discover their subject matter and and how to shape it. I think that in poetry, poets typically think so much about form, but as fiction writers, we tend to not really focus on form, and yet I think structure is a huge part of fiction, and trying to figure that out, I think, is one of the, with my students, is one of the more pleasurable parts of my teaching. I, I, I wonder sometimes about um, the many different ways in which writing can be taught. And of course, the question has always been, can writing be taught? And I want to ask you that question from a couple of different perspectives. I know you've contributed to certain books on writing, like Brett Anthony Johnson's Naming the World. You contributed to that, the writer's notebook that's getting ready to come out. You've contributed exercises. What benefit do you think books on writing have for the average person who's struggling, who's working on writing? I think I should say that I came to writing um, as an autodidact. I, uh, you know, I thought one could just sit down behind the parlor door like Jane Austen and emerge a couple of years later with Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was amazed to discover that in my case, I didn't emerge from behind the parlor door with Pride and Prejudice. I emerged with a really terrible novel. So I labored very painfully to teach myself things. And I think that I can teach my students in six months what it took me six years to learn on my own. Mm. And people say this about writing, but you can't teach someone to play tennis as well as Roger Federer right. or, you know, to swim as well as Mark Spitz. I mean, you can teach writers certain things and other things they figure out on their own. Right, right. Well, there's the combination of like books on writing and then also graduate programs. Again, you've taught in many different graduate programs. You yourself do not have a master's. I mean, there's the whole basic um, theory of just learning by doing, yes. you know, and it sounds like this is what you do as an autodidact. 
Yes, I learned by doing, by failing, and by reading. By reading, yes. And of course, that was the principal way I learned, was going back to the books I loved and trying to figure out how they were actually made. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's hard to do, because when I love a book, I just give myself over to it. I don't stop to think, how is this working? Right, right. Would you consider yourself, I guess, again, having written all these books now, and you think back to when you were writing that first novel, what would you tell your, your first novelist self back then? I mean, what you've learned now, in in the the years that you've since you've put, put all these books, is there something in particular if you could go back in time and talk to that young Margot who's struggling with the first novel? I think I'd say, um, why should the reader stop and read this? Mm -hmm. You know, where is that intersection of private interest and public interest that I think makes makes our best works of literature? And I really didn't think enough about why the reader would want to read the story I was telling. Mm -hmm. I just somehow took it for granted that if I wrote it, people would line up people to read it. Assume. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of those things, would you say, is common for people who are just starting out? Again, just thinking about how, how you know, you keep going with, with writing, how you keep struggling through it. That that first novel oftentimes isn't always the best, <laughs> but you keep going. Yes. Right, exactly. Thank you so much, Marco, for joining us. Thank you, Keisha. This is the book, The House on Fortune Street, the latest from Margot Livesey. I'm Keisha Lynn. Thank you for joining us on Conversations from the Iowa Writers Workshop. The preceding program was produced by the University of Iowa in association with the Big Ten Network.